Hi, good afternoon. I'm Lou Eisen and welcome to Ring Talk. Today we're going to talk about one of the most exciting, controversial, I mean it wasn't controversial in the sense that something bad happened that people disagreed with. It was just an, an incredible fight. It was the 1951 February 14th fight between world uh, middleweight champion Jake LaMotta, the bronze bull against Sugar Ray Robinson, the former world welterweight champion. And this is a phenomenal fight, uh, 13 rounds. Both these men gave it their all. This was the sixth time they had met during their careers. Lamada used to say, I fought Sugar Ray Robinson so many times, it's a wonder I didn't get diabetes. And uh, they were friends after, not before, but... Um, these were two opposing forces. You had Robinson, who was really the prototype for Muhammad Ali, the slick, stick-and-move fighter who had tremendous power in both hands. And then you had the Bronx Bull, who was a walk-in slugger, but had more skill, technical skill, than he was given credit for. And he had a tremendous chin, granite chin, which he showed that night. Also, Lamada, in 106 career fights, he only got dropped once in second-last fight at light heavyweight by a guy named Danny Nardico. Lamada said it wasn't a knockdown, but when you watch the film, he got hit with the right hand. He was exhausted. He went down. So this fight was Robinson's uh, first crack at the world middleweight title. Robinson previously had beaten Tommy Bell for the world welterweight title. And Tommy Bell, as Angela Dundee told me, is one of those great African-American fighters that never got the proper respect or is due because of the racism amongst the sports writers and in the sport at that time. So you have uh, Ray Robinson, who was born Walker Smith Jr. in Georgia, and then moved to Detroit, to the Black Bottom area. And then when his parents got divorced, moved to New York City at the age of 11, moved to Harlem. And this was sort of the tail end of the Harlem Renaissance. And uh, Robinson was out in the street every day playing. He, he, got, he was part of gangs got into trouble. He was incredibly athletic. He would earn money by tap dancing for people. Robinson had an ability, some people have this, I don't, uh, to pick things up immediately. You could show him something physically, how to do something like tap dancing or how to do a certain move in boxing, and he could do it. He could just imitate you and do it perfectly. Not everyone can do that. Some boxers can, but it takes a while. Robinson is considered a uh, the consensus pick for the greatest fighter ever to have lived pound for pound. And it's important that we explain that phrase. Uh, the phrase pound for pound. Today you see, for instance, the other week they said, Arthur Bitterbeev deserves to be on the pound for pound list. And he does. But the, the phrase pound for pound was invented specifically for Sugar Ray Robinson. And what it means is if all weights were relative, were equivalent in value, he'd be the greatest fighter on the planet. And he was, without a doubt. He just did so many things well in the ring. Now, when I asked Angela Dundee, my mentor, who I mentioned a lot, who was the greatest fighter pound for pound, he said Willie Pep, because he thought Pep did more things well inside the squared circle than any other fighter he'd ever seen. Anyways, so you have, you have uh, Sugar Ray Robinson. He's growing up, and uh, he's getting into trouble. Goes by a gym one day, hears the sights. Sees the sights, hears the sounds, goes in, smells the smells of a boxing gym, and he's loving what's going on. You know, he's 13, 14, and he starts, 
he wants to get involved and he speaks to the guy running it, George Gainford, who uh, has him join his club. And Robinson, I don't think, ever lost as an amateur. Of course, it's important to remember a lot of people, when they speak about Sugar Ray Robinson, they give all the credit to George Gainford. Gainford was not his trainer. His trainer was the immortal Harry Wiley, who belongs in the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Harry Wiley was one of the top several great boxing trainers of all time. He also went on to help train Muhammad Ali. Um, Angelo Dundee brought him in for some polishing at the end of Ali's training camps. So all the stuff you saw Sugar Ray Robinson do in the ring as a pro, that was all Harry Wiley, especially, especially the spectacular knockout against Gene Fulmer when he re-won in the rematch. He won uh, the middleweight title again. Fulmer had a habit of crouching and getting into Robinson's face. Robinson was 5'11", long arms. He needed room to punch. And Fulmer smartly didn't do that. Fulmer would just get inside, wrestle him, rough him up. And so uh, Harry Wiley said, push him off after a clinch, which he did. Step back six, seven feet across the ring and then use his own momentum against him when he rushes you head first. And he did. And he hit him with the left hand, knocked Fulmer out completely. It was known as the perfect punch. So this fight with Jake Lamotta, Lamotta was a hard luck story. I was very privileged to get to know Jake Lamotta uh, when I would go to the Boxing Hall of Fame. I would sit between him and Angelo Dundee on Saturday nights at the at the uh, wine party before the actual uh, banquet in Syracuse. The uh, cocktail party was at uh, was in Canastota. And so I got to know him. He was married again, and uh, I think he was married seven times. Uh, LaMotta had several kids. Robinson fathered a kid when he was 16. He was married at 16, divorced at 19. Uh, LaMotta had two sons, I think, and a daughter, and both sons died. And uh, one son died of cancer when he was much older, and the other son died in that airplane crash over Newfoundland in um, I think 83, 84, but he had a third son with his seventh wife. Uh, LaMotta grew up in the Bronx. By his own admission, he was a tough, tough guy. You know, he said to me when I was speaking to him one time at the cocktail party, he said, did you ever see Raging Bull? And I said, of course I saw Raging Bull. You know, what a great movie. He said, it wasn't true. And I said, what do you mean it wasn't true? And he said, well, first off, I was much, much much worse to my wife, Vicky, than they ever showed in the movie. Said there were three things that weren't true. Second of all, never beat up my brother, Joey. Never didn't get along with him. He said, I love my brother. We never fought once. We got, in fact, we lived beside each other in Florida in condos, adjoining condos for the last 40 years. Also, he said, I never said to Sugar Ray Robinson, you never knocked me down, Ray. He said, because when that fight, the sixth and final fight, which we're talking about today, was stopped. He said, my nose was broken, my lips were shredded, teeth knocked out, blood pouring from my mouth and my nose and over my eyes. He said, I, you know, I'm broken rib. I couldn't, I, I could barely breathe. He hit me in the Adam's apple so many times. He said, so I had to be helped to my corner. I never said to him, you didn't knock me down. I couldn't say, I couldn't even say help to my own training staff. Lamont is coming up. His father, who was a, a, a former prize fighter, but his father didn't pursue his dreams and always regretted it. LaMotta was matched with his brother Joey and other neighborhood kids growing up by his father and would fight for money. 
And when he didn't want to fight, his father would slap him. And, and Lamana, by his own admission, was an animal. I mean, he, he, you know, he went to jail or juvenile detention when he was young for armed robbery, beat people up, knocked a guy out with a pipe and stole his money. And later on, the guy after Lamada won the middleweight title came to say how proud he was of him. And Lamada was in tears because he thought he had killed the guy and gotten away with it and realized the guy had lived. And Lamada was a real brute at that point. But, you know, he was self-managed, and this was a time when they had in boxing, you know, the mob was in firm control, and they kept saying to him, you're not getting a title shot until you get in the bed with us. And LaMotta said, I, you know, I'd sooner kill you than get in the bed with them. LaMotta had never had any fear of the mob. And when I asked him why, I said, why were you afraid of the mob? He said, well, for one big reason, I was stupid. I didn't know enough to be afraid of them. And he admitted that as much at the 1960 Kafafer hearings. So Lamada is fighting, you know, he's, he's getting decisions. He was the first guy, I think, in 40 fights, 45 fights to beat Ray Robinson in their second fight when Robinson moved up to middleweight, beat Lamada when Lamada wasn't champ yet. And then uh, they fought a second time. That was in New York, second time in Detroit. Lamada beats him. He probably beat him the third time, too, a couple weeks later, but they gave that to Robinson. Lamada's beating everyone he can beat, but he's not getting a shot at the title. And it's killing him because, you know, he starts boxing professionally in 41, and the way he fights, his style, you know, like Arturo Gotti, and Gotti, Gotti was a really good technical fighter. He just didn't want to do that. He You'd hit him, and he wanted to hit you back right away. He became a slugger. So Lamada couldn't get the fights he wanted, and he would fight people, and, and he was beating people all over the board, all over the country that were good fighters, but he still couldn't get a title shot. So his brother Joey and him went to see uh, Blinky Palermo and Frankie Carbo, who ran boxing, and these were two of the most vile, evil, vicious uh, amoral cretins that ever came across boxing. Just vicious people who stole money from fighters, fans, promoters, killed a lot of people in the sport who didn't accede to their whims. So he said, how did I get a title shot? This is 1946. Now, that's important. And they said, this is what we'll do. You get a title shot if you take a dive against Billy Fox. Blackjack Billy Fox was a light heavyweight. Now, LaMotta, although he was 5'8", would fight light heavyweights and heavyweights. He would balloon up in weight. But he was so strong that he, you know, I'll fight anybody, anywhere, anytime. That's what he said. And Fox had won, I think, his first 36 fights, mostly by knockout, if not all by knockout. But they were all fixes. And this is the thing, one thing the mob never understood. When you had a great fighter like LaMotta fighting essentially not too talented a fighter like Fox, everyone knew LaMotta would kill him. And so when you have a guy like that uh, and you fix the fight so the lesser guy wins, the audience isn't stupid. The papers aren't stupid. You just hurt the sport. And LaMotta didn't want to do this, but he had to get a shot at the title. In 210... In 2010, he told me at the Hall of Fame, he said, you know what, Lou, I'd do it again. I would do it again because if I didn't, I wouldn't have gotten a shot. It didn't matter what the New York State Athletic Commission said or any athletic commission. 
If the mob didn't want to give you a shot, you weren't going to get a shot. It was as simple as that. And I earned it. I was the best middleweight. He was known as the Crown World Middleweight Champion. At that point, he loses to Fox in four rounds. After the fight, he said I had a ruptured spleen. Not true. He didn't have a ruptured spleen. He could die from a ruptured spleen. He just didn't. He didn't fight back because those were the orders. And the, the unbelievably, the New York State Athletic Commission said there was nothing fishy about it that they believed his doctor. So Lamada throws the fight in 46. The salient point here is he still had to wait three years. That would drive me insane. I mean, I got to wait another three years. He waited three years to get a shot at the title. In, in the interim, Tony Zell, who was, who was one of the all-time great middleweight champions and the best body puncher ever to have lived, Zell defended his title against Graziano in their three fights, won the first fight, lost the second, won the third by knockout, defended against a great, great French-Algerian Marcel Cernan, who was having very publicized romance, although he was married, with the great French chanteuse Edith Piaf. And Cernan knocks out Tony Zell. Cernan's the champ, and he's a great fighter. He's had 97 fights or something at this point, lost one. I mean, he's, he's incredibly gifted. Plus, he's a real gentleman. LaMotta genuinely liked him. So, uh, well, uh, I guess, uh, no, I just want to answer one of the questions here. Noel, you can get a film of Sugar Ray Robinson at Welterweight on YouTube. Look for Sugar Ray Robinson versus Tommy Bell. And that was the fight in which Robinson won the World Welterweight title. So... Lamont is getting ready to fight Sudan, and they're fighting in Detroit. And as they fight in the first round, they're clinching, they're wrestling, and they're trying to get loose from each other. And Lamada throws him to the canvas, dislocates Sudan's left shoulder. That's the first round. He can't, he, can barely, he can't lift his left arm now. He still fights for another nine rounds into the 10th round, and he just can't come out. He, he can't do it anymore. And he doesn't complain. Said it was a fair fight. The better man won. Shakes Lamada's hand. Lamada's now the world champion. And one of his heroes, Joe Lewis, puts the belt around his waist. They had signed for a rematch. Sernan goes home to Algeria to train. Coming back six months later, his plane crashes in the Azores. And he dies. And it destroyed Lamada emotionally for a while because he genuinely liked Sudan. Boxing isn't personal, this was just business, and he really liked him. And so he moves on. Now at this time, uh, Robinson it, has beaten all the welterweights. You know, he's beaten Tommy Bell, he's beaten all the other good welterweights around there, he's beaten Kid Gavilan, another great welterweight, just beat Kid Gavilan, and they're having all these wonderful, you know, fights, and Robinson's winning all these fights. I mean, after his second fight with Lamar, which he lost, he goes on like another 40, 50 fight winning streak. You know, Robinson rarely lost until later on in his career. So he's doing well. And Robinson, you know, he's beating all these guys his first four or five years, our first couple of years even in the sport. He beats future welterweight champion Marty Servo, current lightweight champion Sammy Angot. And then he, he destroys uh, Fritzy Zivic, future welterweight uh, champ. So, you know, or former welterweight champ. So he's beating all these guys. He's beating named guys. And Robinson is doing it easily. 
And so after he's beaten everyone, he wants to make more money. So he moves up to middleweight and he starts beating all the middleweights around. And he fights Lamada and he fought him at middleweight, I think three times, won all those fights. And it wasn't until 1951, February 14th, known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, where he steps up and he challenges the great Jake Lamada for the world middleweight title. At the press conference, Robinson did to him what he did to Basilio several years later, Carmen Basilio, which is he would drink a, a cup of calf's blood and offered it to Lamada, who just looked at him like he was crazy. But he would do that just to psych out his opponent. I don't know if it had really any effect on Lamada, but um, uh, it was sort of an odd thing to see. So they're training and you know, when uh, Ray Robinson was growing up in Detroit, uh, his two heroes were Henry Armstrong, who he beat, you know, as a welterweight. That's another good fight to watch at welterweight, Armstrong versus uh, Robinson, although Armstrong is way past his prime. And his other hero was Joe Lewis, who was, I think, seven or eight years older than him. And he, they always supported each other. During the war, Second World War, uh, LaMotta was in jail for a lot of it, and Robinson joined the army along with uh, Joe Lewis and got into fights in New Jersey because of the racist times they were living in. He was called the N-word quite a bit and just wouldn't take it. Went down to Georgia where somebody called Joe Lewis the N-word and Lewis, because he had a tremendous stutter, wouldn't approach someone or fight them verbally. Lewis had connections in the State Department and the government. He would just go make a phone call to someone he knew there who would who would call the army base and reprimand the general in charge and who would reprimand and eventually dishonorably discharge the two officers that were yelling these this racial abuse at Robinson and Jackie Robinson as well as Sugar Robinson and Joe Lewis. Robinson got out of the army, he said he fell down a flight of stairs, had amnesia, didn't know where he was, someone found him on the street, took him to a hospital. Most people think he did that, that, that didn't happen, he just didn't want to be in the army. And it's hard to blame him being called the N-word a hundred times a day, every day, by all these southern soldiers and northern soldiers who were also Americans. And he just didn't want to do that. He didn't want to give up the money he was making, but more. But that wasn't the issue. He didn't want the racial abuse because he thought, I'm not going to take this. I'm going to keep fighting these guys. Why am I fighting for my country when my own soldiers are attacking me? And so whereas Joe Lewis had gone to the State Department and eventually got the boxing exhibitions and shows he put on to be integrated. But he did it through the back door. So Robinson gets out of the army and he's, he's, um, he's coming up and in his fights. And, uh, you know, his, his ring debut was actually in 1940. So now we're looking at 46, 47, doing very well. Eventually he has to move up to middleweight. Uh, Jake LaMotta at this time, after he wins the title, still had exciting fights. Um, he had fights, middleweight fights before that, and some of them were questionable that he lost because he was fighting mob-controlled fighters. Audiences rioted. He fought a guy named Jimmy Reeves in Detroit and was given a, lost a very controversial decision, which people believe was fixed. Reeves won the second fight. In the third fight, LaMotta started him, knocked him out, fell face first. He was out. Lamada just gave an angry look at the mobster sitting ringside. I mean, that was a dangerous thing to do back then. After Lamada won the world title, 
he had he fought uh, a non-title fight with Robert Villamon from France and lost. Lamada always had trouble with his weight. He he had to come in at 160 or 157. You know, these were same day weigh-ins. And after each fight, he would balloon up to 200, 220 pounds. He, you know, he had to starve himself. One of the few things that was true in Ranging Bull was he would go into the steam room for four, five, six hours, and they might give him one thin sliver the size of your baby fingernail of ice. And that was it. Because if you don't lose the weight, Back then, you lose the title, and you lose your purse. You're fighting for nothing. And that was another reason he didn't want to get into bed with the mob, because they knew they would steal his money. So I, I was remiss. I didn't mention the fact that when he fought Sudan, not only, not only did he have to take a dive against Billy Fox three years earlier, he also had to get 20 grand out of his title fight purse to the mob to assure that he got the Sudan fight. His uh, next fight... He beat he beats Tiberio Metri from uh, Mitri from uh, Italy, which was a very good fight. Mitri was a very good fighter, so was Villamon. Then he fights one of the all-time great fighters, Laurent Dotil from France, who fought out of Montreal for a short time. And this is a fight you have to watch because um, when you watch this fight, it's phenomenal because Dotil just beats Lamada every round, and going in, he's winning the fight. And Lamada's exhausted. Lamada had a habit during his career of playing possum. He would let the other guy hit him and hit him and hit him, go against the ropes. He had his hands up, drop his hands. Guy would come in to finish him. Lamada would duck under it and do what Julio Cesar Chavez did in the Melder Taylor spin off the ropes and then catch the guy with a good shot and then finish him off. So there's less than 20 seconds to go. The tail is way ahead in the cart. 20 seconds, he's the undisputed world middleweight champ. And Lamada lets him hit him, and then Lamada spins off the ropes. He was playing possum, catches him with a, a left-right combination. Dutil is staggered. He he stumbles to the side ropes, where Lamada finishes him off, and fight stopped with 13 seconds to go. And Lamada, no, he got he he knew he got away with a lucky victory there. I mean, he earned it. It was a legitimate victory, but he was desperate to pull something off because he was going to lose. At that point, Sugar Ray Robinson, who was at the fight, thought he can't make middleweight anymore. And I always thought Lamada, this is just my opinion, probably would have been better served as a light heavyweight, except the world champion then was Archie Moore, and that would have been a, a hard, hard road to climb. So they have this fight in 1951, and they're both ready for it. February 14th, 1951, and in Chicago Stadium, and they're going at it. And the first two, three, four rounds, you know, Lamada looks good. He's getting shots in on Robinson. He's cornering him against the ropes. He's hitting him in the chin. He's pounding his body. But Lamada's really struggled to make weight for this fight. I mean, it was really right down to the last second. He had to sweat off each pound. And Robinson came in, I think, at 157, 158. Lamada was 160 right on the nose. And then went home the rest of the day and gorged himself because he was weak. Lamada came into the fight dehydrated because, not to take away from Ray Robinson's victory, but because he sweated so much to lose weight on the day of the fight. First three, four, five rounds, you know, it's a pretty even fight. And then sixth round, after the sixth round, 
where Robinson was moving and hitting LaMotta coming in, hitting him to the body and outmuscling him. LaMotta comes back to the corner and he's breathing really heavily. He, he's, he's having a hard time breathing, catching his breath. As the fight progresses, Robinson starts landing more shots on him. And he's landing four, five, six punch combinations. And he's fighting him in a smart manner. He's using his, his prohibitive arm reach, arm advantage, to, or reach advantage, excuse me, to just beat the hell out of LaMotta, except for the fact that LaMotta can take a hell of a punch. And LaMotta is so tired in the seventh, eighth rounds, and later on, he, he can't get his hands up to block the shots. He's just taking them flush on the head and on the chin, but he's still coming forward. And there's a time in the fight, eighth, ninth, tenth round, where he's actually almost turned sideways to Robinson and leaning back to somehow try to mitigate Robinson's shots. But Robinson can't miss. And Robinson gets a bit winded at times, but he's in such superb condition, he just pours it on and he just keeps whacking LaMotta. And he's winning round after round after round. And the question, of course, is, of this is how much can Lamata take? The, the uh, ringside announcer, Don Dumphy, is saying, you know, Lamata's taking a hell of a beating here, and uh, but he's showing the heart and courage of a champion. And he is, but he's taking a hell of a whooping. And Robinson keeps coming after him. And Robinson's trainer, Harry Wiley, said to him, just keep at it. Just keep cutting him down. He kept hitting him in the stomach and the solar plexus, kept hitting him in the liver hitting him in, 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 to the body on the right and left side. And he did that because, excuse me, he thought, you know, kill the body, the head will die. Lamotta won't be able to move. He's taking away his mobility. And Lamotta couldn't move away from his punches. And it's kind of horrific to watch from the ninth and 10th round on. I mean, you're mesmerized by the skill of Ray Robinson, but at the same time, you're also just in awe of how much punishment Jake Lamotta can take. And... You know, LaMotta is, is doing his best, but 10, 11, 12, he's exhausted. He's just trying to catch his breath. And the referee, Frank Sikora, is watching them go at it. And uh, LaMotta's trainer, Al Silvani, is giving him advice and keeps saying to him, do you want to, you know, do you want me to stop it? Do you want to quit? No, no, I'm, if I go out, I go out with my shield. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win or die. And he keeps going out and... In the fatal 13th round, he goes out one time too many, and they're slugging it out, and he gets Robbins, he gets Lamotta against the far ropes, and he lands 15, 20, 25, 30 shots to Lamotta's head. He's just pounding it. And Lamotta's splayed out across the ropes. I mean, he, he can't breathe. He can't get his arms to throw a punch, let alone block a punch. And the referee, Sakura moves in and stops the fight, at which point Al Silvani and Joey Lamotta come in and grab Lamotta and take him to his corner, and Robinson is now the new undisputed world middleweight champion. And the thing about that is, of course, LaMotta was never the same. That was his last big fight. He fought on after that, but he wasn't the same. He was losing to, to lesser guys, and um, uh, he was just phenomenal. And, uh, but he had outlived... You know, guys like LaMotta had a short time span. You have to understand that he started in 41. By 52, he was done. When he won the title, he was past his prime. He lost to Danny Nardico, and then he lost to Billy Kilgore, and he called it a career. Robinson still had a lot of his career left. You know, he still fought on for another 14 years. And, um, yes, I agree if you know that the best body punchers are McCallum, Arguello, 
Chavez, Joe Frazier, Leonard Hearns, and Duran, but there were guys long before them who were known as phenomenal body punchers. And the best one was considered to be Tony Zell. Tony Zell broke guys' ribs. Tony Zell won a lot of the knockouts with, uh, with body shots, as did Lamada, as did Jack Dempsey. You know, this, was, this is an art form, you know, killing the body, the head will die, that goes back 300 years. So there were a lot of great fighters in the 30s, 40s. Too numerous to mention, Joe Lewis was a phenomenal body puncher. So was Jersey Joe Walker. So Robinson wins the title, and he goes on a tour. Robinson's world famous now. He's got his pink Cadillac. He's got the beautiful bars, Sugar Ray's in Harlem. He's got, all, he's got dozens of stores in Harlem that he owns. And he goes on a world tour, takes his Cadillac. He takes his little person, as they call them now, who, who was sort of his valet. He has his own. He has a guy who just only job is to comb his hair. That was it. He takes his whole entourage, his cook, goes to England, fights all these guys, beats them, loses to the Brit Randy Turpin. Uh, in a very close fight. Robinson wasn't in shape. Comes back to New York 69 days later, knocks out Turpin, uh, I think, in the uh, 12th, 13th round, regains the title. Robinson won and lost the title five times. So uh, Robinson uh, keeps fighting. The mob keeps applying pressure to him to get into bed with them. He won't do it. So... At this point, he just says to the mob, you know, I'm tired of this. I'm done. I'm the biggest draw in sport. I'm the one that gets all the money for me and everyone else. And you still benefit because you control the other fighter. You're not going to leave me alone. You can have the sport to yourself. And he quits. And he goes into show business for three years. He does a tap dancing, singing act. At the beginning, there's some interest. But, uh, you know, he's not really that good at it. And their interest wanes. And then, you know, he finds out that his businesses are broke because he put friends and relatives in charge to run them. And he has to get back in the ring. At that point, he doesn't have the leverage he had before. In his first fight back, he loses to Ralph Tiger Jones, who was a really good fighter. So what happens then is he has to make a deal with James D. Norris, head of the International Boxing Club, and the mob. And there's no evidence that the mob fixed any of his fights. What they did is they helped him get these fights, and if decisions were close, they sort of shaded it. The judges shaded it for Robinson. Not saying he didn't actually win, but there were some close ones where, you know, it could have gone the other way. Uh, long before this, he fought the great fighter managed by Chris Dundee, George Freedom Abrams, true fighter they fought as middleweights. And Abrams most likely beat him, but the judges gave it to Robinson by something like half a point. And uh, Abrams claimed forever after it was the mob help. So this was before he was the world middleweight champ. So he comes back to boxing. He challenges Bobo Olsen for the middleweight title. Poor Bobo Olsen. Very good fighter. Just could never do well against Ray Robinson. Robinson wins a bunch of fights, knocks Olsen out in three rounds wins the world middleweight title for the third time. So three times world middleweight champion, that's incredible. And what does Robinson do at this point? Does something unbelievable because he started as a lightweight. He moves up to light heavyweight to challenge the great Joey Maxim, 
who was trained by Jack Doc Kearns, who became Archie Moore's trainer after Moore beat Maxim three times in a row. They're fighting in New York. It's 104 degree temperature. They're fighting under really hot lights, really humid. And Kearns gave Maxim some great advice. He said, listen, the title's around your waist, not his. You don't have to go after him. Let him come after you. Let him use himself up, stop him in the later rounds. Robinson won every round. He was dominating Maxim. His speed was so, so much quicker. He only came in like 162, 163. Maxim was 175. That's something I neglected to mention earlier. In the middleweight fights, the five before the one we discussed today, you know, Robinson was coming in at maybe 152, 153. Lamada was coming in at 160. And their first couple of fights, Ray Robinson uh, and him, you know, Lamada was 160, Robinson was 142. So Lamada always had the weight advantage. Most people did over Ray Robinson, but his speed and his technical acumen and his tremendous skill negated that weight advantage and the power of the other fighters. So it's a brutally hot day in New York, a brutally hot night. He's beating Maxim. He's seven rounds ahead. He's eight rounds. After the 10th round, referee Ruby Goldstein collapses from heat prostration. It's just too hot. And Robinson is beating him. And after the 13th round, Robinson staggers into the ropes. He's severely dehydrated. His corner, Harry Wiley, has to help him back. Dr. Vincent Nardiello, the doctor of the um, New York State Athletic Commission, says, I, I, I can't let you come out. You know, you could die. You're extremely dehydrated. He's having trouble seeing. His kidneys are in trouble. And they stop the fight. Maxim wins the fight by TKO without winning a single round in the fight. So after the fight, Robinson said I was beaten by the heat. Maxim said it was just as hot in my corner of the ring as it was in yours. And so he goes back to fighting at middleweight, fights Gene Fulmer, who was a middleweight but had the power of a heavyweight. Fulmer was just a tough, tough man from Utah, a Mormon, and he came into the fight and he just stayed on top of Ray Robinson, pounded his body, didn't give him room to breathe. He used the old technique of putting his head right under Robinson's head and push it up with his head and, and then start whacking him with both hands. Uh, Fulmer threw punches from all angles, which landed anywhere. It's a great middleweight champion, and he beat him. And he was now the champ. And Robinson didn't complain. He went back, trained again, had the rematch, and the rematch is going pretty much the same way. Fulmer is much stronger than Robinson. He's winning the first four rounds. And in the training camp, Harry Wiley had gotten to the ring, and he said, listen, this guy is bullying you around the ring. He's, got, he's right on top of you. You're not going to win unless you create space. You need punching space. So he showed him, when, you know, get him to the far ropes, clinch. When the referee breaks, push him then take four, five, six steps back. And he did. And then when Fulmer came in, he hit him with a short left that traveled four to six inches, left hook. Fulmer goes down on his face, gets up, crawls to the ropes, can't beat the count. Robinson wins the title again. Now, Fulmer goes back to his corner where, where his trainer, Mark Jensen, says, what are you doing? And he's jumping up and down and throwing punches. I'm getting ready to defend the title against Ray. And he said, Gene, the fight's over. You got knocked out. And Fulmer said that it was 
when I spoke to him, it was the easiest way to go because he said he never felt a thing. The punch landed, he was out, and then he woke up later. Fulmer, uh, I think, it, Fulmer goes on, not a thing. Fulmer goes on and, and to a tremendous career. Ray Robinson uh, fights Carmen Basilio next, the Canastota onion farmer. And this is why the Hall of Fame was in Canastota. It was done in honor of him. And um, so he fights Basilio in New York at Yankee Stadium. And Basilio said his goal in his life was to win the world middleweight title at Yankee Stadium. All the Yankees are there. And of course, it's an all-white team at that point. They're all cheering for him. And he goes in. And before the fight, before the fight, they had a press conference. And people said this happened before. I've heard various stories. I heard stories from Angelo Dundee. I heard stories from Gil Clancy, you know, uh, Rare Cell, that he got up to him with his wife at a previous press conference for another fight and introduced himself. And he said, I don't give a damn who you are. But apparently at the Syracuse fight, the sign, the fight wasn't in Syracuse, but the sign for the fight, they had the press conference in Syracuse where he was from and, and, and where he fought out, excuse me, because uh, he was born in Canastota. And Basilio goes up with his wife to say hi to Ray. Remember me, I'm Carmen Basilio. And apparently Ray Robinson said, something to the effect of, I don't want to, I'm not interested in meeting you or any Dago whore you're with. I don't know if he actually said that. That's what was rumored to have been said. Angelo said it took him and a couple other guys to grab Basilio and hold him off. And so during the press conference, you know, they have the middleweight title belt and they said, someone said to Carmen, you know, that's pretty impressive. And he said, I don't care about the belt. He can keep it. I'm just going to take these hands and I want to beat the life out of him. And you could tell, you know, the resolution in him and the anger in him. Of course, angry fighters don't fight well. And he was determined. And, you know, before the fight, they said to Basilio, Howard Cosell said, well, nine out of 10 sports writers said that Robinson will win. What do you have to say to that? And he said, nine out of 10 of them are wrong. And from the opening bell, Basilio was on him like white on rice. He, he watched the former fight. He just stuck to Robinson. He took Robinson's best blows. Basilio was only 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, Robinson was 5'11". So there was this great disparity in height and reach. And Basilio, and a lot of fighters do this today, what, what Angelo did was he had a rope diagonally across the ring in training, and he'd have to duck under the rope, you know, to get to the other side of the ring and throw punches. So Basilio fought out of an exaggerated crouch. He used his, and Angelo learned it's from Charlie Goldman, which he used of Rocky Marciano. He used his lack of height to his advantage by making himself a much smaller target. It's very tough to punch down and be accurate. And George Trevallo found that out when he fought Joe Frazier. So Basilio's on top of him, and he's pounding his body, and he's giving him a hard time. I mean, he's really giving Robinson a beating. It's a reasonably close fight, but Basilio wins a split decision and is now the middleweight champion of the world. Of course, they have a rematch clause. Uh, in, in the interim, Basilio gone to a doctor and had scar tissue removed from over his eyes. And Angelo didn't know that. So in the second fight, early, I guess, first, second, third round, Robinson hits him in the left eye, right on the eye. And if you've seen the fight, his eye swells up like a grapefruit. And he said to Angelo in between rounds, cut it. 
And he said, I can't cut it. There's no scar tissue. I'd be cutting right into your eye. And so Basilio has to fight the rest of the fight with a swollen eye. And he loses the fight. It was a very close fight. It could have gone either way. And then Robinson keeps fighting. He holds the title for a while. You know, five times undisputed world middleweight champ. Fights, uh, I guess, late 59, 60. You know, he's been fighting since, since the early 40s. He fights Paul Pender for the world middleweight title. Paul Pender was the champion then in Boston and loses. And Robinson kept fighting guys and, you know, he, he kept fighting until 1965. He didn't want to retire from the ring, but eventually in 1965 he does. They have this beautiful soiree from Madison Square Garden where in each corner of the ring is a champion that he defeated, you know, uh, Gene Fulmer, um, Carmen Basilio. And the one person who wasn't there was Jake LaMotta, who lived five minutes away, because LaMotta had gotten in a lot of trouble. He, after his career was over, he'd moved to Miami Beach. LaMotta got in trouble like all fighters do when they started to drink. He ran a club, Jake's, and, of course, he was caught, as they show in the movie, Raging Bull, with an underage girl there who was acting as a prostitute. He goes to prison for six months. You know, uh, Vicky divorces him, and uh, he sells his title belt. And he ends up moving back to New York, where he works as a stand-up comic. He works in uh, different movies. He was in the movie The Hustler. And, um, you know, when Raging Bull comes out in 1980, he has sort of a resurgence. And he outlived. The interesting thing about Jake was he outlived Ray Robinson by quite a while. Uh, Robinson, who was born in Georgia, May 3rd, 1921, he died April 12th, 1989. In in uh, Los Angeles, with I believe his third or fourth wife, from Alzheimer's, right? So he was sixty eight. Jake Lamada just died two seventeen. He lived to ninety five years old, and he was cognizant till the end. One of the interesting things I found out about him when I spoke with him was, you know, he had two sons and a daughter in one of his marriages, and. Both sons died. One died of cancer. They were adults. The other one died in that plane crash over in Newfoundland in 84, 85. And he said to me that he thought it was divine retribution for the way he had treated people. I didn't agree, but I'm not going to say that to him because he's pouring his heart out. He just thought he deserved it. That's why when, when he didn't quit against Robinson in this fight, he thought, I deserved the punishment for the way I had lived my life. But Robinson, after Raging Bull came out, he enjoys sort of like a, a new birth in his career. He's getting uh, speaking engagements, acting engagements. Uh, he's making money, and he's doing well. And he had had to scuffle in the early 1960s and late 50s uh, to make money because he had lost most of his money on bad investments. So he would be at the Hall of Fame every year. He would sign autographs. And... I, I mean, I loved speaking to him. He's one of the legends of the sport. He, and he openly admitted, if I had to do it over again, I would do it over again. You know, if I had to throw a fight to get a world title fight, I would. Because otherwise, I never would have had a chance at the title. And no one would ever know who I was. Robinson, uh, there was a guy that Angelo Dundee was very close with who, who idolized Robinson named 
Mel Dick. Mel Dick is, I think, the third largest owner of wine and spirits in the United States and one of the largest in the world. And as a kid, he befriended Sugar Ray Robinson and Angela befriended him when he was a kid. He would come to Stillman's gym. Every day he'd showed up. He was 12, 11, and all he did was stare at Ray Robinson all day. Finally, Ray Robinson says to him, why are you looking at me? He said, because you're my hero and I love you. And Robinson couldn't believe it. And so they became good friends. Robinson went to Maldick's bar mitzvah and he drove him there in his pink Cadillac and he came in with him and like was there for the whole evening. And so when Robinson fell on hard times later on financially, it was Mel Dick who supported him all the way. And also Robinson, when he had Alzheimer's, it was Mel Dick who paid for all his medical care because he idolized Ray Robinson. And Angelo Dundee was the man that introduced them. Um, so uh, Robinson, although he had Alzheimer's, was still looked after because of his friendship with this young kid who, as he grew into an adult, still adored Robinson and still looked after him. LaMotta was friends of De Niro, Scorsese. LaMotta had a lot of friends. He was mobbed at the Boxing Hall of Fame. And what I was surprised most when I met LaMotta was how small he was. He's listed at 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, he, 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 I'm 5'8". I mean, he must have been 5'6", or whatever. Didn't have big hands, but he had the boxer's nose, flat nose. And you could tell he was incredibly tough. And I mean, to have over 100 fights, only been knocked down once. And he fought the best of the best, as did Ray Robinson. You couldn't, at that point, avoid good fighters. And these guys were fighting top-level fighters every two, three weeks. Sometimes they'd fight the same fighter two, three times a month. There was no getting around it. They had to make money, and you had to keep your rating where it was. Later on, they appeared in uh, with Kurt Gowdy on um, The Way It Was, where they would look at great fights from the past. Uh, they were friends with each other in the end. People like hearing that. I don't know why they like hearing that. Um, uh, I just wanted to answer some of the question. Um, I want to thank Noel for um, saying this. So you can see all of Ray Robinson's fights, most of his fights, on YouTube at Welterweight. And, and look for the Gavilan fight as well. And at, at um, Middleweight. Robinson didn't fight long as a welterweight. That's the thing. He won the title, and he was gaining weight, so he moved up to middleweight. Um, these, this is one of the most brutal fights I've ever seen. And in terms of brutality, it compares to the third Ali Frazier fight because it took a lot out of both men. You know, Ray Robinson during the interview of Don Dunphy is still, you know, he's breathing hard. And Lamana took a phenomenal beating, which eventually finished off his career. The same beating that Robinson took from Basilio in both fights, and Robinson was never really the same again. Um, if you can get a chance, I watched this full fight. It's colorized, but you can watch it colorized or black and white. You can get it on YouTube, and it's one of the all-time great middleweight fights. People talk about Hagler, Hearns, you know, and that was a tremendous fight. But imagine that kind of action for 13 rounds. You know, you have the brilliant... Uh, Ray Robinson, the dancer boxer against the incredible immovable force, the one man slugfest, Jake LaMotta, who refuses to be beaten, even when he is beaten, will not go down. If you get a chance, I'm telling you, you won't be disappointed. This has to be one of the top 10 all time great fights, especially in the middleweight division. Next week on Ring Talk, I'm going to talk about the First fight between George Foreman, 
the Challenger and World Heavyweight Champ Joe Frazier, which took place March 1973 in Kingston, Jamaica. I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend. I want to thank Noel and everyone else who who uh, texted me. And I, my name is Lou Eisen. This has been Ring, jo Ring Talk. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have a good day.